how I got here. The inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Welcome to How I Got Here. That's uh, Focus Wire and Mozio's weekly podcast where we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel, tourism, hospitality and transportation. Our guest this week is Richard Volter. He's the uh, founder of Muse. He formed the company, which is uh, based in the Netherlands in Amsterdam in 2012, and it's best known as a software provider for the hospitality sector. It creates a number of products, including property management systems, housekeeping apps and kiosk apps. Uh, To date, Muse has raised just over $40 million in investment funding from the likes of Battery Ventures and others. A uh, very warm welcome, Richard. Thank you so much for joining us on How I Got Here this week. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, tradition dictates that we always ask the same question to all of our guests. Um, I, you're nodding because we know you've listened to many of these before, but um, hopefully you've rehearsed what you're about to say. But tell us, Richard, how did you get here? So I started Muse back in 2012. Um, it was uh, while I was building a hotel in the centre of Prague, which is where I'm from despite the English accent. Um, And yeah, and I thought that uh, as well as building a hotel and building it without a reception desk, it would just be quite easy to actually kind of create this this entire operating system for a hotel and for for other hotels from, from that point henceforth. Um, and yeah, I thought the uh, the PMS part of it would probably take about a year to do. And here I am nine years later, still struggling to do that. But uh, but thankfully, with a lot more backing and, uh, and, a, and a fantastic team that um, I've been lucky enough to, uh, to assemble along the way. Now, roll back then. You said you were building a hotel. Um, you don't just leave school and start building a hotel. So what did you do? What was leading up to the moment that you decided to build a hotel? So, yeah, so I, uh, basically this is what my mother, after the fall of uh, the war, she, she came to the UK and she fell in with a bunch of investors from the UK and uh, then uh, came back to Czechoslovakia as it was uh, back then to actually kind of develop property and especially hotels. And so that's where the family association came with, I guess, basically being in property. I would always have to come back for all of my summer holidays to spend time as a night receptionist. Um, and that's also one of the reasons why news does not have a night audit. Um, uh, and, um, and I, yeah, I, it basically kind of went from there. So I, I had to go uh, and be a night, uh, night auditor or night receptionist at the time I came back from the um, school holidays. And then I studied in London, worked in London, and I was about to actually move to America uh, to uh, to work for a film producer as I was working in the film industry at the time. And my mum asked me um, if I could come and help out with the family business for a few years. And one of those things was basically building a hotel. And uh, I just decided that it would become my baby and I would do it my way. And um, and that's that's how you started. Now, in your introduction, you talked about while you were building this hotel, you decided it needed a PMS. I mean, that's that's a very very short answer to something that I imagine was quite a complex thing for you to decide to do and get involved in. So, talk us through, if you can, Richard, what that process was. Yes. Yeah, so, the first idea and the first version of News was really a guest facing app that would link. Uh, visitors to the hotel to the actual staff. So in a way, you know, it was a 60 key hotel and it was a way for 
everyone to feel that even though you're in a, in a big hotel, you have that kind of intimacy to a host. Um, and it was really a kind of platform where the guests could essentially completely personalize their stay. They could basically say all the things they wanted to do in Prague, all the ways that they wanted to be served and all of these different things. And then on the other side, there would be essentially a task management piece of software that would communicate to the PMS and um, you'd be able to actually kind of make sure that all of these things could be carried out at scale. Uh, so you wouldn't need to have, you know, 60 receptionists looking after 60, um, uh, 60 guests. And so when I started talking to all of the different PMS suppliers that were out there, um, they just told me it was impossible. There was no, there were no APIs. Um, you know, some of the leading uh, solutions in the market just told me that I'd have to spend something like a hundred grand with them on a special project. And um, at the time, you know, I I'd done some coding myself. I I'm a, basically a terrible programmer, but I was lucky enough uh, to find uh, a few a few people that uh, you know. One of which is now actually our CTO. Um, and uh, and yeah, and they we started kind of. Um, first doing doing the application and then actually kind of creating what has become the PMS. And um, yeah, that was that was basically how it all kind of started. It, and it was you, to further this vision, basically, that the reception doesn't actually need to be, like I styled it and the way that we actually kind of build it was that it was actually, a you know, it was a stylized version of somebody's living room. Um, so what you were coming into is, you know, just it was supposed to look like a living room and all of the people that were the hosts were actually walking around with, you know, either iPads or iPhones um, and doing everything on those. Uh, so you wouldn't need to actually kind of have a, a place. And to be to be uh, to be honest, there was, you know, a little bit of a takeoff of, uh, of an Apple store. You know, you also don't need a cashier point uh, in an Apple store. And, and that's really kind of where we where we started off with the idea and we've just kind of been building from there. You said uh, just a moment ago, Richard, that you were looking around at what other people were doing. I mean, just go a little bit deeper if you can in that kind of market discovery from a competitor perspective, because yes, you didn't think that there were many other people doing it, but there are many, many other brands with, I would think it's safe to assume, much bigger war chests than you had as a brand new company. So how did you size yeah. up? This is our chance to go for it. Or, oh, crap, cyber hospitality, for example, is probably just around the corner from doing the same thing, right? Yeah. Well, the thing is, there were there were a few problems. So the first one was that every single PMS thought about it from the room point of view, whereas what I was basically building was, you know, something that was structured much more like a CRM because I didn't want anything to go to the room because I thought that it didn't make any sense because what I wanted was for there to be essentially a kind of customer wallet um, and for you to be kind of walking around the hotel, you know, going into the restaurant, going into the spa, going into the club that we've kind of created or actually walking around the city and just loading up items basically onto that, that guest bill essentially. And if you always had to post things to the hotel, uh, to, the, to the hotel room, it really didn't make sense, basically. So I just thought the architecture of those systems were, were wrong. And then if you look at the CRSs, they don't really kind of care about what happens actually on the property. So from that perspective, you know, the, the, the architecture, I thought, of the entire industry was a little bit kind of wrong. Um, and so from that perspective, you know, we, we just thought that actually if we start from first principles and, and building it in this kind of way, everyone else has this like mountain of tech debt of um, ways that they'd built it basically for a completely different era. 
and um, and we would be able to you know naively to um, to actually kind of create a completely new standard uh, and a new way of looking at things and and that's really kind of where we where we started off from and and frankly that was also the the reason why it took us so long to actually kind of raise money and and get traction because uh, so many people um, you know didn't believe in that it's like how can you know essentially a couple of kids from from uh, you know Central Europe or Eastern Europe you know basically kind of you know compete with oracle compete with the sabers of this world um and you know i think there's all these statistics about like i think saber has spent more than 100 million basically kind of like trying to build a pms at various kind of life cycles um i think they they had one in the us you know but they've never really kind of had the traction with it and the reason is because it's just difficult the thing that i had on my side was you know that i had I was still so naive that I didn't know how exactly uh, this thing was going to be so difficult. And so I just went into it like head first and then just, I guess, had the grit and determination and then was able to actually kind of attract so many amazing, talented people like Matt, our CEO, um, uh, you know, to actually come along on this uh, on this journey and, and actually kind of believe in the vision that we could actually transform hospitality some someday. I feel like, David, here now, I, I feel like, one of the reasons why many of these PMSs and many of these, these older systems end up being so unusable is, you know, feature creep and um, adding a ton of different, you know, different, different, you know, stuff. And, you know, when you allude to Saber spending hundred million dollars, I'm sure that's because the spec they, they came up with was, was every single possible variation in order to run, you know, one, you know, a major brands, you know, various different boutique hotels, big hotels, conference-based hotels, everything else. Um, I feel like, you know, one of the pieces of advice a lot of startups get is don't boil the ocean when it comes to your, uh, you know, your, your initial product market fit. How did you think about where to start? Um, so I wish that I really kind of took to this uh, advice a lot sooner because the way that we were always kind of the way that we started off from was really that we were building a global company and that we were, you know, in a way boiling the ocean. Um, and, you know, we'd created a number of different, uh, you know, we'd, we'd had this entire kind of check-in app, basically, that you would use to actually kind of, you know, working off this, this initial idea that you would, you know, do that check-in, you would basically kind of state your preferences, you would check, uh, you would chat with the, um, uh, with the receptionists at the hotel, the hosts. Um, but essentially, that that's kind of what we what we did. But then, because we were in Czech Republic, we had to build a huge amount of complexity. Because, for example, there's all of these things that a PMS needs to do, which is essentially all of the accounting functions. Um, and then also working out of Czech Republic, there's basically there's not really a market to expand to. So we actually had to expand pretty quickly into places like uh, the Netherlands that were easy because uh, Matt's Dutch, the UK because, um, you know, of, I guess my accent. Um, and so we had to kind of create a very, very international product from day one. Um, and we thought that that was, a, that was a good thing because, you know, travel is extremely international and to think in this kind of big picture point of view, um, that's really what we had to do. I think the, the the best place where we really did find our niche, and it was due to the kind of unique architecture that we that we had at the time, uh, where we essentially kind of identified hostels as a market or a segment of the market that we could actually really really target and go after, and that's basically because hostels essentially represent the low cost airlines 
of um, of the hospitality industry. So if you look at it, it's basically, you know, if you want, you have a single bed, if you want a double bed, you're going to have to pay extra. If you want a, um, uh, you get a shared, uh, shared bathroom, if you want a private bathroom, you're going to have to pay a little bit extra. If you want storage space, you don't get a wardrobe, you actually just get a locker room that you have to pay a little bit extra for. If you want a bigger locker, you have to pay a little bit extra. If you want towels, you have to pay a little bit extra. It's basically, it's the same thing that you have with an EasyJet or JetBlue if you're in this country. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and hostels had been uh, an incredibly underserved market uh, because nobody could think in this kind of logic. Everyone kind of thought about it in the way that I think still to this day the, the hotel industry thinks about it, which is that, you know, it's like a crappier version of a hotel. Um, but actually, if you think about it, it's a, it's a much more kind of atomized version of what a hotel actually is and you're kind of building upwards rather than kind of thinking in yeah, yeah it's like the, it's like it's like, the, it's like the purest architecture actually when you think about it like if you're going to construct how like every single part of it like a hostel almost as a reflection is like well they charge for literally everything like nothing gets bundled in and you have to extract it back out that's very clever yeah and, and that's basically the problem with like how these systems were created because if you think about it you know in it was only in 1920 that you get the bundled room you know it was like you know with the with the um uh the hotel pennsylvania and you get you know a bed and a bath for a buck and a half you know like um that's the first time that you have a bathroom in a hotel room so when these systems were actually being created in the 80s and the 90s everyone thought that it was you know a um some kind of standard thing to put a bathroom in a room but actually if you think about it it is just about you know bundling that together because you have you a standard hotel room is in itself a bundle you know you have a bed you have a table and you have a bathroom and then you also have the the wardrobe you know those are four distinct services but you create those as a bundle and and that's the thing when we created the system we didn't think that that was the way that you should actually kind of think about the room you should think about that as actually a bundle of four services rather than thinking about it as a uh, a single entity wow um i love the Hotel Pennsylvania references out of curiosity. It sounds like just this is a little bit of a tangent. But it sounds like you're a little bit of a nerd when it comes to some of this, you know, back. So I remember, I remember reading about the the Savoy and and Ritz and I think Escoffier and how they they launched it and how and I think I remember hearing some sort of a similar kind of story about how it was I think one of the first hotels to include a bathroom in every single room. Um, how much does history and and that type of knowledge educate you, the way you you build your business? Well, so uh, I'm like, so I studied philosophy. So for me, these things basically kind of um, come in naturally into it. Um, and I think that, you know, I'm, I am like a huge history buff. Like at the moment, I'm like really, really discovering um, the American Constitution. And I just love, you know, that period of 1776. Our country is two right now, so, so it's okay. <laughs> like, I, yeah, no, no, but it's, it's great. Like, you know, I... <laughs> I have a five-year-old uh, daughter and like we really get into like Hamilton and all of these things. So, you know, it, it's great that that was like my gateway drug into it. But um, but I, I feel like these things are important. And, you know, th this is actually why I'm so happy to be, you know, in the States because I, I do feel that this is the country that kind of still does question everything, you know, and, and is happy to go back to first principles and actually kind of debate it. I think sometimes you know it's not just in the hotel industry but i think that so many times we just take we as society kind of like take this point of view that you don't have to rethink 
some of the basic things and kind of go like, why the hell are we actually doing this this way? It doesn't make sense. Surely there can be a different way if we just change the, uh, you know, the architecture of, of, uh, of what we're doing. And, and that's, you know, we, we try and apply this kind of first principles thinking and this kind of logical thinking to pretty much every single thing that we do uh, within the company. So when we, me and you first spoke a while back, actually, it was because um, my investment group, um, Ground Control, um, shameless plug, groundcontrolhq.com for anyone who's interested in checking it out. Um, we were vetting a bunch of, uh, you know, it, it, we were vetting a bunch of hospitality tech companies and we were trying to figure out kind of how the stack all works together. And there's booking engines, there's channel managers, there's PMSs and more. And I think anyone who's trying to innovate uh, in this um, was really you know, trying to figure out like, you know, how do you, who's going to be the winner because they're all competing and half of them have one or two or three and, you know, are interfacing with others. How do you think about how you fit into the wider tech stack, you know, ecosystem of hospitality tech? Like, I think that what we're, um, we're just trying to basically kind of, um, I guess, focus on ourselves. Uh, I think what we're really, really happy with is, you know, as far as I, I know, um, or at least I do know that this is true, but I don't know if others would acknowledge it. We were the first people to have an open API in the industry. Uh, you know, we made it super easy. We published every single thing, basically, and we built in, a, in an API first way for a lot of our, uh, our partners. And now it's kind of like, I'm happy to see that it's an industry standard because this is, you know, something that I was like incredibly unhappy with basically back when I started the company. And that was really the thing that I kind of wanted to change. But it's basically because of the fact that the reason why you don't have that much innovation and when you do have innovation, it's very kind of limited and at the edges uh, uh, of what we're actually kind of doing in hospitality. Uh, the reason why that's the case is because you don't really have open platforms. And because of that, the, the uh, barrier to entry into hospitality is really, really high for a lot of startups. And, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of is that, you know, you have a bunch of startups now that really kind of got their first uh, traction, their first uh, actual kind of hotel clients with us, you know, and they were able to then grow into something that's, you know, much, much bigger. And I think that that's, that's something where, you know, we can see, and it's like, you know, companies like Oki, like Pace, uh, and a bunch of others basically that I can, uh, that I can name that, that really kind of, we were really their route to market. Um, and then they can actually kind of, you know, have the traction to be able to go to some of these other PMSs basically and say, look, We'd love to actually kind of uh, do this with you. And, and it's the same thing with, for example, like a lot of these now different kind of platforms, basically, that try and unify a lot of the uh, different APIs, basically, that are, uh, that are out there. You know, you can see that uh, there's a lot of logic, which is basically kind of taken from our APIs. And I think that that's, that's also something that I'm really, really happy with. Uh, that it has become, especially for these these new different types of platforms that try and basically unify the space. Um, that, that we are essentially that kind of that uh, the, the the standard of what what is a good API, basically. I'm feeling fairly nostalgic with you talking about APIs and not many people doing it. Um, David just gave a shameless plug, so I'm going to talk a little bit as well. But back in the day when we, when I was uh, uh, editor of a, a site called T News, we used to run hackathons in London and San Francisco and all sorts of places. And the way they worked is that we would persuade or try to persuade all the like the GDSs a lot of the time to open up some APIs just to let some, you know, hackers play around with it. And the first 
you know, a couple of them, it was a real battle to kind of knock on their door and say, come on, just for the sake of a nice hackathon, it's 24 hours, everyone eats pizza, they get to see sunlight for the first time in months, you know, all this kind of thing. And it was interesting, there was this circle and they suddenly realized what the actual benefit was of opening up a little bit because then hackers would come along and start playing around and they go, oh yeah, well, that's actually quite interesting. So um, the point is that, getting to a question finally is what kind of when you said you were the or you claim you were the first to actually do that those peers in the industry that must have been looking on either enviously or annoyed I mean what kind of um, uh, kind of feedback or sense did you get from them that you were um, dare I say pioneering something that they had never even gone down the road of doing like I think that you know I don't want to be um dismissive because I think it's you know it's always difficult for example for a company to let go of a huge cash cow you know so if you look at something like uh, somebody like Oracle you know they do have in a number of their companies basically they do have a, a number of you know open APIs basically they bought a number of you know API um, you know aggregators basically and, and things like that so it's not like the, the mother company doesn't know about this and doesn't know that this is where innovation comes. But when you're earning most of, you know, you know, when you have distinct product lines, basically, that you essentially have to kill in order to do this, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult for you. And when, you know, PMSs as a, as a general kind of thing have kind of become fairly commoditized. And nobody really thinks of them as, you know, it's really difficult to actually kind of build a PMS. Like it's, it's one of the kind of the, the, the hidden secrets basically that like nobody really wants to pay for a PMS or that much money, but the amount of intellectual heft that goes into actually kind of like creating it in the first place yeah, is actually huge because you deal with some of the most complex questions basically that like, you know, even the likes of, you know, a Stripe or a Google or a Facebook, they haven't figured out how to do most of these things, basically. Um, and it's just because of the fact that you're dealing with really, really complex transactional data um, that you then have a problem, basically, with, you know, especially on cloud level, on a, you know, if, if it's one point of sale, it's fine. If you're basically managing different points of sale and you're trying to actually kind of figure out where are these reservations coming from, you know, uh, how do I kind of close it out before there's two orders on the same thing? You know, these are these are really, really difficult things to actually kind of manage in the cloud. And that's why it's been, A, you know, so difficult for some of these companies to actually create these cloud products in the first place. And then B, it's actually been really, really difficult to figure out, you know, how do they work differently to the on-premise solutions, basically. And then C is, you know, how do we get the, uh, the hoteliers also to think in a way that, you know, it's not just you plop, you plump it down and the only cost that you actually have with the PMS itself are these, you know, maintenance costs, basically. And all of that cost is kind of front loaded, uh, which is essentially what you had when you were actually buying a server that you would have in your um, in your property. And you could kind of write off that server after after buying it. And um, and the, the kind of the, the introducing a kind of more SaaS mentality from that perspective has actually been really, really difficult for um, for most hoteliers. And, and I think that also for a lot of these uh, PMS companies, it was difficult for them to justify, again, this very, very different type of business model that they would have to actually kind of build 
if they wanted to go to the cloud and essentially kill their existing business. It's interesting. Um, I'd like to change tack a little if we can, um, Richard. And correct, you'll correct me if my source here is wrong. It's the uh, dreaded crunch base. And I've been found <laughs> out by a couple of people that we've interviewed before to tell that's not accurate. So let's go. Your first, your first funding round was in 2016. Uh, yes. Yeah, that's true. So that's four uh, years after you launched. So talk us through either, either why it took you so long or why you waited so long before raising that first round. Like I've probably knocked on the doors of every single VC in mm -hmm. Europe at least three or four times. Um, and, um, and it was mainly because of the fact that, you know, what we were always doing was quite large and people don't like investors don't love travel. You know, there's <laughs> even, even if you actually kind of look at Airbnb, <laughs> you know, you like look at the founding story and what they had to kind of accept basically as terms. And like, there's a, there's great uh, podcast called Acquired basically where they really kind of actually go into like the founding story of Airbnb and the, the frankly like extremely crappy deal that they got from Sequoia, you know, and it's just, so even companies like that basically like really, really struggled to raise money from any sort of serious investors. Um, and the problem again is basically because it's so difficult to scale in this industry and you don't have that many interesting companies basically that come out of this industry and they're not really you know tech companies a lot of them are just you know good sales execution companies basically um and from from that perspective i think that what we used to kind of get would be a lot of these investors that would go look i think what you're interesting is really good but i think this one tiny sliver is really interesting why don't you just stop building this thing and just focus on this and i didn't want to do that I just thought that we would never get to building this entire kind of infrastructure and architecture uh, that would actually really, really change this industry. And I'm passionate about changing this industry, I think for the better. Um, and so that's why we like never wanted to take in uh, money that was, you know, tied in with those, uh, those types of uh, conditions. And, and also frankly, you know, money that basically would tell us what to do i think we were always you know i think now there's a much better you know f uh, founder friendlier point of view but especially then you know in, in central europe specifically it was just very much kind of you know there was a lot of control that would come with the money and um and again i didn't want to kind of give that up and so uh we ended up just basically bootstrapping we we invented this thing where we would actually, our first clients, what we would do is basically tell them like, these are the 20 things that we're working on. Um, and you can make some of those features skip the line by paying us 10 grand for every single feature. Um, and so uh, every single point. So some people would basically pay 50, 50 grand or something like that if they wanted something which was like number six to actually go to number one. Um, and so you'd kind of prepay your, uh, you know, and it was a way for us to not do, you know, custom projects and still kind of work on, on building the actual product that we wanted to do. Uh, but we, we ended up doing it through this kind of like uh, prioritization. So, yeah, it was like it was a real struggle. And like there were so many times when we basically like couldn't pay our developers and we had to ask them for, you know, 
month or two months basically for for them to wait and it was it was just awful like the the whole I, I think that's the thing like you know now when people go and go like oh it must be so difficult to raise money but like first of all that's not true anymore uh but then the second fact of it is, is that you know those are real problems and that's really really difficult you know like the early parts of a of a startup are by far the most difficult um because to be able to get to you know that magical level of a of 100k in recurring revenue uh when you can actually like seriously go after after a series a or at least it was back in those days i'm sure now you could basically do it with 30. um it's like it was just incredibly difficult to actually kind of get to that point and again because we had to do it you know we were in a basement in czech republic and we were trying to sell to hotels in in amsterdam and uh and the uk and essentially telling them like look we might look like jokers we think we're doing the right thing but just trust your entire business in our laps i think to to do that is is pretty difficult basically um and yeah i i'm eternally grateful for those uh for those early adopters uh for them to actually kind of see what 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 we were what we were building and um and yeah hopefully that they're, they're still happy with the product um so yeah i feel like i've got a laundry list of actually references to other how i got here podcasts that like what you just said brought up <laughs> so one is that we had greg o'hara on and i think it was one of the more popular ones he's from satara's partners and something we were chatting about is that you know for the amount of gdp that travel and transportation in general does in the world um c- compared to like finance there's 25 fintech you know vcs out there and there's like only a couple things that anyone's doing any travel and our you know our theory and he seemed to agree with it was that it's partly because travel is the biggest delta between you know what you think what people think they know what how, how it works and how it actually knows like no one storms into a hospital gets you know arthroscopic surgery or something goes well i figured out how healthcare works but like people generally go on a euro trip and then always think that they know exactly how it works and what i found is you know, I was giving some advice to about an angel investor. And I was just like, I feel like a lot of people in the travel, like who start investing in travel, they do something with like a bunch of other Facebook or Pinterest execs or something, invest in a travel planning startup, it, it implodes and they go, well, I'm not touching that industry anymore. And there's, it's so easy to get burned like in this industry by not knowing. And I hope that, you know, this podcast can actually help correct some of that. Um, but the other thing I also thought of is that, um, one of our first interviews was Aaron Gowell from Silver Rail, and he talked about fix-it businesses versus disruptive businesses. And hopefully for listeners, now I've given you a bunch of back podcasts you guys can all go listen to. Um, but I think there is a, a trend to, in Silicon Valley especially, to really embrace, embrace disrupted businesses and sometimes poo-poo fix-it businesses um, because there's a lot of bureaucracy and there's a lot of you know things that you need to kind of wade through. Um, so anyways, that's a, less a question and more of a you know additive rant uh, on top of no, 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 but I, I love that. Like, I think, I think that there's, I think it was, um, I think his name's Ryan Hoover from Flexport. Um, but, you know, there's, there is this kind of, um, you know, it starts off as a mentality in Silicon Valley and then basically everyone kind of, um, everyone just copies it. But there is this overhang to, um, you know, businesses that basically are kind of like disruptive because they have a slightly disruptive kind of edge, basically. Um, and, you know, when you look at companies like Flexport, they're building a lot of stuff that doesn't really scale super well, but they're doing it because they're helping their customers actually become better at their jobs. 
you know, or they're just actually kind of fixing a lot of those kind of problems, basically. And it might be a huge tech investment, um, and it doesn't really kind of, you know, seem that it's there for, for scale, but it's because the actual kind of part of the industry, it doesn't have a, you know, very vibrant ecosystem, basically. It doesn't have a huge amount of money, basically, in there. So there are some problems that you do just have to go out and, and actually try and solve. Yeah, because it's it's just good for the customers as a whole and and in general you don't get you know a lot of investors basically kind of looking at that and going like well that that's a good you know that's a good place for you to actually kind of you know spend your money um and um and yeah and yeah like to your point like the there's so many times that for example like in our a's and b's we'd be introduced to all these investors and they'd be like oh yeah we know travel there's this guy who used to kind of who did an investment into booking.com he knows he knows what you're doing so well and i was like there is literally nothing that you could tell me that is interesting to my business from that side like it's just like there is there is almost no transferable points of yeah, reference these yeah, guys are they like they look at cac and ltv of like you know or something like that and google adwords spend and have no clue at all they, like, yeah oh, what's going on and they're like stuff. they're like oh you have a booking engine therefore it's the same business and it's like no 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 a booking engine is essentially a hackathon that we ran you know and it's just it's now a really really shiny nice piece basically but it's got nothing to do with the actual technology that we build Absolutely. I had two other kind of lines of question here, but based on things you said, one is you talked about getting people that um, uh, uh, you know, basically bribe you 10K in order to you know, jump to the front, the front of the line. And I feel like, you know, over my 11 years running Mozio, we've, we've done a lot of interesting things to get um, non-investment money in the door. And I think this is actually a part of the startup journey that is often not talked about as much is how do you get that $400,000 contract from someone to build out a bunch of features and and postpone fundraising in some way and how do you you know creatively find a you know a clever way to you know kill two birds with one stone and you know I'd love if you can expand on that a little bit it sounded like we scratched the surface on the the the, the, the varying ways you hustled uh to get this off the ground like I I feel like, you know, I don't want to descend into hustle porn, basically, because I feel like, you know, it's like people, people end up listening to like Gary Vaynerchuk and all for, for what's with, I, like, I, like, when I say like hustle, I don't, I know what you're talking about. Like, I'm not talking about like, oh, you worked like 40 hour days or something like that yeah, or, yeah, yeah. or whatever. I'm, I'm more talking about like, actually, like almost the office. Let me tell you this way. Like, what's, what's one of the, what's the phrases? Like the most creative people are lazy, right? Like, and um, so almost the opposite. <laughs> How are you like creative in order to like not, you know, fundraise almost? Like, I think the, you know, I think that was probably one of the, the, the biggest ones that we, that we could do. Second of all, it really, really did help actually being in, in Czech Republic and especially kind of Prague uh, for finding, you know, we had a huge amount of developers basically for the type of and the size of company that we actually kind of were at the time. I think the other thing that I would say, which is probably going to be contrary to a lot of good advice that people actually kind of have, but I would say like, don't build out a sales team until you actually get money through the door. Uh, so we really kind of didn't really have a proper sales team until 2016. Um, and it was just like basically kind of me and Matt, uh, particularly just going in, uh, knocking on people's doors. And that was, that was kind of terrible, but it was also why after 2016, when we had a, um, uh, a proper sales team, basically, we could then scale so quickly. And, you know, we were posting huge numbers all the time with every single salesperson because we could actually, we were really, really sure that we had product market fit that we could actually kind of invest into. Um, whereas I think the, 
the the normal model for most startups basically right now is to try and you know hustle get it through the door do do all of those things whereas we looked at it as like you know where would we like to actually kind of get our product to before we we end up actually kind of raising money i think that was one and then the second part was that we were just i think uh, like quite creative in terms of the different areas that we went to basically with our product so you know i think that one of the things that we we started kind of looking into quite early on was for example payments um and you know now everyone's kind of on this shopify model uh of you know you create a saas uh, part and there's there's essentially a kind of uh, an entire part which is you know where you're essentially a payfac um or payment facilitator basically for those that that don't know and for us it really kind of started off from from trying to solve some of the big problems within hospitality and you realize that actually a lot of the problems that you have within hotels particularly is that a lot of the problems are actually kind of fintech problems um and a lot of it is about you know how can you make sure that you can authenticate the people that are actually kind of coming through the door so if you really want to have a really really good check in you need to make sure that the person who who's coming in is the person that they say they are and that second of all that you have a credit card that's actually kind of stored to that person and if you're trying to do all of these things basically kind of in the cloud you know you you have to essentially act like a payment gateway um and so that was really kind of one of the i wouldn't kind of say hacks but it was one of the things that we started working on from a from i guess 2014 uh was when we incorporated kind of braintree um and then when we actually kind of started looking more and more kind of into this uh we've just built out a huge kind of pay payments or or actually kind of fintech infrastructure uh that mirrors quite a lot of what shopify is basically kind of doing uh but we didn't we didn't have a template for it we just knew that we were looking at it from the point of view of you know how do we solve these problems of basically you know when hotels wanted to get paid early um what about the reporting basically if you if you don't need to have a um you know a uh, report at the end of the day where it shows all of your payments basically with uh all of the reservations that that have been taken how do we think about that basically from a completely automated point of view and it leads you down the path that you essentially have to kind of pay you know build a uh, a payment gateway as part of your um entire solution you know and and since then we've gone you know a huge deal further basically and and looking into all the different uh types of services like fx and um you know and uh, essentially versions of you know uh, square capital and all of these kind of like different things that that I think are a well trodden path basically it's an interesting point i bet one of the reasons we met up the first time was because i i had heard the tagline shopify for hotels way too many times in vetting pitches and uh, it sounds like you were kind of like early early on that i wanted to quickly move on to to one last kind of more expansive question before i hand it back to to kevin um which is you've talked in the past about saying you guys aren't only a hotel hotel tech company you're a prop tech company um what does that mean exactly well i think that the um so it comes from like the basic kind of insight which was you know right at the beginning of muse but essentially if hotels and hospitality companies want to kind of call themselves you know customer first companies then they have to actually start start acting like it and you know i don't understand what is customer facing about asking a customer to wait in a queue you know when they're actually supposed to just check in or what's customer facing about telling somebody oh you arrived at, at 8 a.m. uh but you you're going to have to come back at 3 p.m. because that's the check-in time 
you know, those are not customer facing and customer kind of, uh, you know, the, those are not things to actually kind of uh, build a greater relationship with the customer. Um, same thing with, for example, not recognizing the customer when they've actually come every single year for the last 10 years, you know, and there's no way that your system can basically track it again, because it's based around the room uh, and not the customer. Um, so from my point of view, the way that I, I've always kind of looked at this is to say, um, you know, we need to kind of make sure that we're doing that. But from the kind of prop tech angle, it makes no sense that you essentially sell a room for 20 hours, you know, check in at three, check out at 11. You're, you're selling an arbitrary 20 hour period and you're calling it a night. It, it's not a night, it's not 24 hours. Um, and once you kind of go down that path, and again, if you start kind of looking at, you know, again, a room as four different services, it logically kind of leads you down this path of basically seeing that you have four services uh, and each of those, for example, have their own prime times. Um, so then when you're looking at it, you look at the bed that has a prime time between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m. You look at the chair and the desk that has, you know, that's part of a service called work, uh, which essentially the, the basic level of that is kind of co-working. Um, and when you have private working, basically, that's between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Then you have a spa service or hygiene service, which has its own kind of um, uh, prime time between 7 and 8 a.m. And then again, between 8 and 9 p.m. You have a storage service, which is you know also dependent on other factors. So for example, if you're coming with a family or all of these different things, but you start looking at it basically from the fact that you're, you're kind of building up all of these different things. And when you see it, then... You know, you start saying, well, why is a room service or a kind of stay service only 20 hours? Or why is it only 72 hours, basically, in a, in a three night stay? You know, why couldn't it be a product that you're actually kind of selling for 100 hours? Um, and you're actually kind of looking at it as basically like it's the 72 hours that you're actually kind of staying there. We're pricing up all of the different services that you're consuming uh, specifically, basically, within that period. Um, and then after that point, sorry, this is probably getting really, really esoteric, but the point about it is, is once you've actually kind of built this kind of logic uh, into the in infrastructure, you start looking at every single thing like some kind of subscription product. And it doesn't really kind of matter if somebody is actually kind of coming for three nights or if they're coming for three years. Um, it's still the same type of service. And it basically those services that you're actually kind of putting into a hotel room, you can put them into any type of real estate, basically. And you can see that with, you know, Airbnb, for example, coming out and saying, you know, we didn't really know that we were going to be a, a travel company. And I think that that's, that's fairly similar with us, basically. I think that we look at it as, you know, we're hospitality is basically the, the kind of the, the apex predator of the rest of, um, uh, of the rest of, uh, real estate and um, all of those different types of services basically are just you know it, it, when you have a service department for for example like extended stay or something like that that's still a hotel like service um, you're just basically kind of doing that uh, you know you're not cleaning the room every single eight hours or so uh, you're just maybe doing that once every single th uh, once every three days um, you know it might be that you instead of 
having a chair and a desk in the room, you actually have a co-working space, basically. Um, can I, can I restate something for you there? I, I think what's really interesting mm-hmm. what you're saying is almost like hotel, like hostels where the apex predator, like the first principles of all hospitality and kind of what you're saying, if I'm, I'm saying this correctly, hospitality is almost like the first principles of all real estate because it's the most, one of the more complex things. You're bundling five or six different services and you can say, well, if we're, if we're, if we're solving hospitality, we could easily solve co-working or spa or overnight. Is that a correct yeah, yeah, yeah. Like basically parking, like, and that's the thing, every single space in the end, yeah, has its own set of services. So for example, parking has very limited services, you can do valley parking, uh, you can do, you know, but there's not that much else basically that you can do with it. With a hotel room, there's an entire universe, basically, that you can actually kind of do. So that's why it's the most the most complicated, because once you get into like concierge services and then looking after that full 24 hours, basically, rather than just the eight hours of uh, of the sleep product, basically, uh, you there's a huge amount of services that you can actually kind of pack into those 24 hours to really, really service that guest, which is, you know, how you get full service hotels, basically. Um, but that's that's really the the kind of the the way that we see what we're actually kind of building. And the most complicated use case, again, is hotels. Uh, but then when you're kind of, you know, taking that down into other industries like like storage uh, facilities or uh, co-working spaces or anything like that, um, that's really kind of when you when you actually start seeing uh, the commonality with, uh, with a lot of those things. And, and frankly, also, I think like where the creativity and where we think the creativity will kind of come from, because, you know, for us, again, we're looking at kind of creating that kind of back end. Um, we don't know what's going to actually kind of come on top. And one of the things that, that we're the most excited is, you know, a lot of these people who just come to us and basically use our APIs, they don't care about the actual kind of products that we've created because they just have a totally different idea. And we're like, fine, use, like, if that's the system that you want to buy from us, then it's great. And you're basically just buying like a kind of AWS layer for, for hospitality. And um, here are the functions that you can actually kind of use, and you can basically put them up into uh, into any kind of product on the uh, on the front end. So, for our last question, uh, Richard, I'm going to take you right back to something that you said at the beginning, and you said it almost with because uh, we can see you here while we we're recording. You said it almost with a bit of a smile on your face, and you said, "Oh, well, when I was naive back then." And I just wonder whether you actually sometimes that naivety is actually quite a nice period because you're not exposed to all the other things in the industry that have a tendency to kind of drag you down a little bit. So do you kind of miss that period at, at all? Or are you, are you, are you better for being older and wiser? Do you think? I don't think so. Like I'm still a total idiot when it comes to these things. <laughs> and I'm just like, I, I, I'm incredibly optimistic and I'm incredibly like, I, I really don't think that anything is like, I know that it's like a real cliche, but I really genuinely don't think that like, things are that much of a problem and that impossible to actually kind of fix. Um, and again, like I'm a huge believer in, in tech and the fact that like the technology that we can, that we can actually kind of build will make this industry better. Like, for example, I hate the fact you know, I, I think that hospitality as an industry is the most like the, the most inspirational and the most fundamental service or the industry that we have as human beings. And I hate the fact that it's known as a low cost industry or that people basically within our industry are paid the least. You know, I, I like for me, I look at like the next five to 10 years. Yeah. Who's going to get paid more? The person who's basically kind of like trading stocks on the stock market 
or a receptionist. You know, like to me, there is one there is one of those that's going to get completely killed by smart algorithms. And there's another one that's still going to be there because humans need, you know, other human interaction. You know, I don't think that basically we're going to be so happy just to stare at our phones. Basically, it's like if you ask somebody, you know, what game they played last week yeah, on their phone or, for example, if you ask somebody about the um, about the trip that they took, you know, like we are in the business of creating real value for a person's life. Yeah, like technology just doesn't do it in the same technology can aid that. Yeah, but essentially kind of entertainment technology that we have on our phones just doesn't pack the same kind of punch. It doesn't create the same amount of value for a human being. Um, and human beings will continue to want to be served, um, you know, um, excited by, uh, you know, interacted with by human beings. Um, and I think they'll pay, you know, increasingly more and more amount of money uh for those types of services because the rest of all of these kind of mathematical things basically that we currently value will become devalued as the technology becomes better there we go i couldn't think of a better way to uh, end this week's podcast on a very inspirational note there richard thank you very much so um yeah once again thank you very much uh, to richard valter for joining us from muse thank you yeah, thank you guys Okay, uh, you've been listening to How I Got Here. Uh, once again, that's uh, Focuswire and Motio's weekly podcast where we talk to the innovators and entrepreneurs in travel, tourism, hospitality and transportation. If this is your first debut listen to How I Got Here, do the right thing and go to where you've got this uh, particular episode from and give us a rating and give us a review. It helps us get exposed more to other people who are going to obviously be interested in our stories and we just like to hear what people have got to say. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual places, go and do that. That would be great. Uh, once again, thank you to Richard on behalf of David and I. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.